0: I'm Amber and welcome to the Lone Star Keto Podcast. Today we have a special guest with us, Susan O'Milian. She is an attorney and an author and a women's advocate. She especially deals with women who have had really major trauma in their life, like sexual abuse, child abuse, and domestic violence. So welcome, Susan.
1: Thank you so much, Amber. It's lovely to be with you on this April day. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's nice. So our weather's a little chilly, but it's, it's, it's pretty nice still. We got yeah, sun. Yeah, same so here. Nice. Where are you, by the way?
1: I live in Connecticut.
0: Oh, okay, okay. I'm Central Texas, so yeah, wow. I'm, re- I'm ready for the warm weather. Bring it yeah, on. We have warm, and then
1: yesterday something blew through here, and it's kind of like discombobulating people it was snowing Here this to. morning in several places oh, okay. like, no. oh my god it can't snow in april can it and the answer no, is yes no, it no. just did
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah no 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 okay so the reason why i wanted you to come on the podcast is because you do have that experience with past trauma and you are a huge advocate of that and so many of my clients come to me and I can help them with their diet and their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. But what I can't do for them is to help heal some of the trauma that they've dealt with. I can pretty much tell right off the bat, once we're talking that there's something a little bit deeper there that needs to be Mm -hmm. addressed, not just the diet. And I'll, I'll, I'll ask a question and I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't mean to pry, but I I'm just curious, do you blah, blah, blah. And sure enough, there's something like rape. Um, one of, one of them was, um, abducted and held for like four months. I mean, there's all this trauma and I'm like, okay, because if you don't deal with that, it doesn't really matter what diet you do. It doesn't matter how much exercise you do. If you don't deal with that mental and emotional issue, you're just never going to be completely whole and, and to have the best benefits. So that's where you come in. Okay, so I'm hoping you can give us some, some uh, good stuff here. But let's start with your background. I want to know your professional and even some of your personal background.
1: So I'm an attorney. Most of all, that's my credential. Uh, I'm not a therapist uh, or even a social worker. Um, I came to this work um, when I was in my and probably in college back in the 1960s and 70s when everything was kind of wild and crazy. There are a lot of things going on, but um, I really, I got very interested in, and not only um, sort of professionally, um, but personally in women's rights. That was a time when um, we didn't have a word for sexual harassment. There were just barely start, the start of uh, sexual assault crisis services. Um, the first speakouts happened in the uh, mid to late 1960s. I was still in high school then, but as I went through college, I realized that not only was I interested in women's rights because I had been discriminated myself, not, not in, in egregious ways, but I could feel that I was treated differently. For example, in law school, it was pretty clear at that time, there's only a third of women in, um, in the class that I was in, um, it was pretty clear that women were kind of supposed to be here yet, um, and um, it wasn't quite clear that um, there was an interest in women's law at all, um, and which I was interested in. I wanted to get a credential because the kind of law that I wanted to practice, particularly around sex discrimination in um, uh, employment. Um, was there was not men male lawyers who were interested in that so it wasn't being put forward and um, although I had no personal experience with sexual assault or domestic violence there wasn't the word domestic violence wasn't even a word yet. Um, it was more relationships that were going badly um, but not the sense of there was a criminal act going on And so I, um, began to work on these issues. I became, uh, while I was in law school, I became a sexual assault victim advocate in the courtrooms. Mm-hmm. Just the beginning of understanding that if women were supported in their criminal cases, that the cases would go better. And not only in terms of the woman's life and her recovery, but the prosecution might actually go somewhere and there might be there might be a successful prosecution. So that uh, coming out of law school was really that urge for me to do this kind of law, which wasn't really out there, um, but I began to find places I could do it. And one thing I did was started to work for a legal aid program. I'm originally from Michigan, uh, was where I was born and raised. And I started doing courtroom work and at that time, we had just passed domestic violence laws in in Michigan that allowed you to get a restraining order that actually might be enforced by the police. And so going in front of judges with women who were beaten and we had just started a shelter there in the area I was in in Michigan. So really beginning to advocate, but then I realized that I wanted to get more involved in in the idea of women's rights litigation. And I couldn't do that in Michigan. So I moved to Connecticut to work in a program here. And I started doing a lot of work on sexual harassment. There was finally a word for it. I helped uh, write some some briefs and some cases that were um, uh, 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 in the federal courts that were trying to get sex discrimination to include sexual harassment. And really started doing some lobbying, particularly around domestic violence, sexual assault issues, rape crisis issues, Um, not allowing the past sexual history of a woman's who was raped to come in because it had nothing to do with the case at at hand. And when I left um, that job, I went into state government for a while. Um, I wanted to get inside to the government and to do some advocacy within government. And I did a lot of work on human services and economic development, all sort of revolving around making sure victim services were there. I left that job in the late 1990s. I really didn't know what I was gonna do. And I was sort of out there. I I started writing a novel actually, which is one thing, the other thing that I do, I'm a writer. Um, And then in 1999, this event happened that sort of crystallized much of the work I had done. It kind of became a thought in my head that everything I'd ever done in my life, some of which were disconnected, Uh, like I never had a personal experience with sexual assault, but I was doing this work, um, suddenly came together. And that was because in October of 1999, my niece Maggie, who was a 19 year old college student uh, at a college in Michigan was shot and killed by her ex-boyfriend. And suddenly I realized in the horror of it, which of course I didn't want to happen. And she was this bright, intelligent, beautiful young woman. Um, who wanted to become a lawyer and she and I would talk about the cases I had and she was really interested in helping people, Uh, was killed by a man who actually had never physically assaulted her before he killed her. Uh, But there were other warning signs that she didn't, she thought she could handle all by herself. And so in that moment of this devastating um, thing that happened, I suddenly had to decide what was I going to do about it. And a part of me wanted to go back to this victim advocacy and, and bring my passion to it, uh, which was now much more immediate and much more personal. This child has to be sacrificed, then something good has to come out of it. But a part of me emotionally couldn't go back to the crisis intervention work. I tried to, but every woman in the shelter was Maggie and emotionally, I just couldn't do it. So I thought, well, what am I supposed to do? And then one day I got this idea in my head that um, at the moment of her death is when Maggie figured out that she was not going to escape. Um, she was not gonna live beyond this. Um, and that was a travesty. So I decided in that moment of great energy that I wanted to help other women who could move on. And, um, and I got this idea that I, the stages that I thought we could work on, I could work on and get other people to work on was the idea that you are a victim Uh, everyone's going to have a struggle in their life. And um, it's not a question of what's what happened to you, it's what do you do with it. And then you can transform into a survivor, move past that event, although it has still has impact on you. And I wanted to see women not only survive, but thrive. And so I started using that word. And it sort of became At first, my own personal journey, because I wanted to do more than survive what happened to my niece. I didn't want this man who killed himself. So we weren't going to take him to trial and and make sure he doesn't hurt somebody else and and put him in prison. Uh, I needed to find my own revenge. And so I found this quote, living well is the best revenge. And I thought, yeah, that's it. And when I started putting out this idea, now remember I'm not a clinician, I'm not a social worker. Um, I had done a little bit of group work um, <clears throat> in the process of, of working with sexual assault um, victims and advocacy. So I decided to do this workshop and I called it My Avenging Angel because that was my my living well is the best revenge. And women started to come to it. Um, I mostly attracted women who had come through a crisis intervention program, like a domestic violence shelter or a sexual assault program, sort of the women you were talking about in the beginning who had come out of it and had started to move through it. But there was like something else. What's next? What? Why do I still feel like I'm always drawn back into it? And for some women who are in domestic violence situations, even when they get out, there's still custody battles and there's still child support hearings, there's still ways you get pulled back into it. And then, of course, the impact of the violence on your children will always be there and sort of working. So that, so it's not a clean break, but it's an idea of what's the next step and how do I get there? And so I devised this workshop and it started to work. I had a number of exercises. I call it the seven steps to thriving, things that I learned that were really helpful to me in my process, and the women start, I've, I've been doing this for almost 20 years. I've put together books, as you can see, they're back, oops, which way is the, is the Zoom site? And um, I began to realize that we're all on a journey. And that journey, if we can demarcate it a bit, if we can put it in some kind of stages, we can, first of all, begin to see that we're actually progressing, which is helpful, but to get to that thriver place. And I've decided that, Although I have a definition of what I think a thriver is, it's kind of a working definition because we really haven't made it big enough, I don't think. And for many years, a lot of women I knew privately who were victims of domestic violence or sexual assault weren't putting that out there as part of their story. So you'd see these really successful women with the exception maybe of Oprah who always talked about her own childhood, uh, uh, emotional and, and traumatic experiences. Maybe Maya Angelou, who wrote that wonderful book about as a uh, um, I know why a cage bird sings about her uh, as an incest survivor, but successful women weren't putting because it was still there was still stigma to these ideas that you were raped or you were you were you were sexually harassed in a job or you had been in a bad relationship, an abusive relationship. So I wanted to see if we could put it out there in a positive way and then to begin to inspire each other. So I think what I've been able to do is to begin to define it in some way and also to begin to talk about it as a journey. And I'm still learning about the journey um, and where women come into to the journey, um, how I can grab them and how we can support each other and then to push it out, to say, you know, what is a ThriveRix success story? What does it look like? For some of the women, it's a state of mind that they feel like they're no longer stuck in this this path. this idea that they um, should forgive somebody. I think it's actually a process of forgiving ourselves sometimes. And also maybe it's something new that you do. Um, You get a, a better job, you get back to school and you achieve something, you become CEO of a company um you buy even buy a house something that begins to demarcate that you're no longer there and I always talk about it that you you're going to slip back a little bit you know there are days that I slip back to the victim stage that struggle that why is this happening to me um Maggie and I have this have the same birth date in August so on our birthdays I can feel myself slipping back there, like, why did this happen? How could this happen to her? And you know, the why questions. And then other days I can feel myself moving in a different space and and thriving. And particularly when I start like today, this is a thriver day. I'm talking about it. So I think we've we have, we've not always given people, and I've also worked with men on this, so not just female survivors of, of trauma. Um, I, one of the things I did after Maggie was killed is I decided not only to work with women survivors, but I've also started working, uh, doing groups. I don't do them anymore with male offenders, uh, domestic violence offenders, and beginning to understand that for many of them, their past trauma history got them to, to an offender status. Many of them talked about If you ask them about their childhood, they had witnessed domestic violence or they had no male role model that didn't include violence as a way of life. So we really have begun to see that, how that journey works for many people and where you get stuck on that journey. And for most women that I meet who come into my workshop are kind of, they're survivors and they're kind of on the cusp of being a thriver. They have no word for it they don't, they see the energy out there, like, why is that person so feeling so much better than me? Um, but they don't know how to get there. And so I try to give them a path to do that. And in doing that, I think I found my own place where my passion and um, the, the personal nature of this, um, that I needed to do something to make something good come out of Maggie's death.
0: I 100% can relate to that uh, because that's what, why I do what I do is Mm -hmm. everything that's happened to me and it's become a passion of mine. So I I get where you get your passion. And that was one of my questions, but you kind of explained that and it makes sense. Um, Can you kind of define what trauma actually is? Can you give that a, a, a definition?
1: Um, I think in most cases, people talk about it in the sense that there's an event or a thing that happens to you that tends to throw you backwards, or I guess the other way to describe it, that challenges your ability to move forward. That's a non-clinical, very simple way that I describe it. Um, There have been things in my life before Maggie's death that pulled me back a bit. Um, but I always felt some kind of resilience to move forward. Um, and resilience is another word that's been tossed around a lot. You know, do people have resilience? So when trauma comes, when these, these very traumatic, very emotional, and sometimes physically just devastating to your body come, do you have something that pushes against it to say, oh, no, you know, I can, I can handle this? Or do you, does it really pull you back? And that resilience may be there, but it takes a while to bring it back up. There are some studies about resilience that talk about it as um, something we have, maybe um, I think they've studied soldiers, for example, going into war. They, the ones who were the most resilient who seem to bounce back after terror, this is, this is the soldiers who were in Iraq or Afghanistan terrible, terrible, and sometimes they were doing multiple deployments back and forth, that some of them had something in their childhood or their ability to cope that they could bounce back. Even though it was a terrible, terrible thing to happen to them, they could eventually back, bounce back and some couldn't. So that thing coming at you, which we call trauma, and I think the interesting about trauma um, research and, and trauma study right now is that they believe that actually trauma can affect your brain and, and the way your brain responds, And sometimes the trauma response, which is a good thing in our brain, kind of the bells are going off, bad things are happening, be careful, be careful. The bell won't go off. And so you're constantly in that, they call it that uh startled response kind of. And, and, and in that discussion, they, uh, the clinical people call it post-traumatic stress. So it's post the stress, whatever that stress was seeing somebody die you almost dying um, physical abuse mental abuse that post-traumatic stress still ho- stays with you and you're waiting for something else to happen and in that in that in that brain chemistry um, it gets the, the brain gets um, the chemistry of the brain gets shaken up a bit And for some women, and you described it in the beginning, I call it uh, victims of multiple trauma, because you're right, if you ask a woman, I I have a rule in my workshops that I don't ask the women to tell their stories. Um, I make sure they're safe, and um, I don't usually work with women who are still in a domestic violence abusive situation or who are just coming out of a sexual assault. I make sure they go to the crisis intervention programs that can do that short-term counseling and the courtroom advocacy, whatever they need. But as they come into my program, um, I don't ask them to go back through that story. Um, I find, first of all, that if they do, I start triggering. And second of all, we all start triggering and then we start crying and it's ter- it's hard. It's hard to hear. And you want to be empathetic, but a part of you is like, oh no, I can't hear this. I can't hear this. So, but in, tell- in retelling that story, you want to tell it in if you do retell it or you begin to move on, you want to tell it in a bigger way, but there's still a way that your brain has been A compromise, I guess, is the best way to say. And so there are things that pull you back and forth. Um, Some days you feel really good. Some days you feel real capable. And other days it's like, oh God, I can't get out of bed. And and I see the journey as not a linear thing, that you're going to be a victim one day and a survivor and a thriver. You're going to go back and forth a little bit. And the only thing I can say is what I've learned to do is not, I can't stop myself from going back but I can stay there for shorter periods of time. Oh, now that's what I'm doing. Now I'm going, I'm being pulled back into that victim helplessness, powerlessness. Um, And I want to, um, I'm recognizing that. And I know that there's a little voice in my head. I call it the inner critic that's telling me, yeah, that's right. You know, you really are damaged. You really, you're not gonna get over this. And I can talk back to that voice and start moving forward. So trauma is the thing that kind of disrupts your normal. Uh, and for and for each person, it's a very different thing. Um, there'd be something that could happen to me that would traumatize me more than somebody else. But there are some generics, <laughs> some very clear generics. It's been interesting in listening to um, the witnesses at the uh, George Floyd trial talk about reliving watching what what happened on the street that day. And each one of them had a little different way of describing it. Like they didn't really wanna go back there, but when they did, they had that voice saying, you should have done more, you should have done more. And then the the courage to come forward and testify was sort of bringing them back into that thriver place. So you can't change what happened to you, but you can change your response to it and, and work every day to keep that response going. And when something really good happens, you can celebrate that. So, the women you work with and helping them reduce their weight uh, or have a, a weight loss um, is a positive thing. You know, this is, they can feel it. Okay, accomplish that. Okay, what's the next thing I can do? And the next thing. And then, what are some of the tools that I use in accomplishing that that I can use in another piece? So, I talk a lot with the women about positive patterns. Um, you know, we always talk about, I do, I have these terrible, terrible patterns that, you know, bad habits in my life, but we don't talk about positive patterns. And I tell women who come through the trauma of uh, particularly a physically abusive relationship that may have gone on for many years. And when they finally leave that relationship, have the courage and the ability to get out and to, and to do it safely and make sure their kids are safe boy, if you can do that, you can do anything. And sort of let's examine that a little bit. How did you do that? You got help, you got this, you would have. So trying to give us um, some sense that the trauma has, this thing has happened to us, but, and I, I don't like to say it as what's, what good can come out of it because it seems, it seems too simple and nothing good. It's a terrible thing to have happened to you, but it happened, and so the only thing you can do is try to transform it, and um, and then inspire other people. Um, I've the women in my group have done things I just couldn't even imagine um, when I first met them, um, but they got that energy and and started moving forward.
0: I love that that I loved how you also touched on the fact that trauma looks different to different people, whereas something that completely traumatized you, maybe as a kid, somebody else would go, that's no big deal. right? But you can't say that because to that person it was. So trauma looks different. I mean, there's certain traumas that everybody can agree to, no doubt. But there are some traumas that can happen in your life that you don't even realize that it traumatized you that much, but it can affect your life, it affects your brain, it affects your health, it affects everything.
1: Right. And they're finding there's some research recently that I find really fascinating, having worked with domestic violence victims for quite some time now, that they believe that a lot of women, even you if either when they may be strangled by their partner, Um, or have a head injury, I've had women who've had like their head shaken or even thrown against the wall, that that's a head injury. It's like a traumatic brain injury. And there are some very uh, uh, complex and very simple uh, results of that. I have women in my group that sometimes, you know, we, and they're doing fine um, and we'll have a little assignment or they want to go do something and they'll just forget, you know, and then they'll be so embarrassed. And it's like, And then I realized one of the impacts of trauma is that your brain doesn't, it gets scrambled. And sometimes because you're on that high alert all the time that you forget the simplest thing. So um, giving yourself that and recognizing it as something that you have to deal with um, but they're they're much more subtle than we think they are. And for some people they're like, well, she got out. She should be fine. Um, And for a long time in the movement actually that was the goal. Um, because there wasn't sh- there weren't shelters for many years. There wasn't even an acknowledgement of a need for a domestic violence shelters, and there weren't sexual assault crisis service. So, so at first it seemed so wonderful and so uh, productive that we got women out. But that's only the beginning of the journey. Um, very rarely can you see somebody who, uh, because it's just because the psychological and the verbal abuse is much more. It's taking away someone's self esteem and to reintegrate that is, and that's why there's some wonderful therapists out there that do trauma work. And um, in fact, in my lifetime, um, there are now therapists who specialize in trauma work. That was never true. Um, And and the science of trauma wasn't that well explored. Um, But the idea that you need to establish safety and stability in that victim stage and move on to remembering and mourning what happened to you And then the third stage would be to reintegrate and reconnect. And there's a wonderful woman I met years ago, Dr. Judith Herman, who wrote a book on this in the early nineties that talked about the recovery, the three stages um, from the safety and stability of the victim stage and recovering and mourning mourning the survivor. And then this, I call the thriver, this reconnecting. Uh, And she talks about trauma disconnects you from yourself and your community and you have to reintegrate. So it's a process and it will take people's lifetimes and your children, the children will also have an impact from witnessing this. So sometimes it's not just what you saw, um, but how it impacted you. Um, and that that's a journey, we're all on a journey, no matter what, I don't know anybody, I don't know. Um, I guess I haven't explored everybody in the world who hasn't had a struggle in their life. So the question is, how did you get through that struggle? What did you do? And sometimes the struggles are much more monumental. And and as you described, um, multiple traumas. Uh, I have found that with the women I work with that. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't always ask their story, but sometimes it gets kind of illuminated as I get to know them over a period of time. And they will tell me about childhood issues and they'll tell me about things that happened in adolescence and then of course, as an adult. So it, it, it's a compounding kind of thing. And each one, maybe the one before it, you overcame, but this next one will be more difficult because of the past ones. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. It does. Okay. And you've already kind of talked about how past trauma can affect the future. We've already done that. Mm -hmm. How do you think that past trauma can affect your actual physical health? I mean, we know mental health, but what about physical health? Have you ever heard of that? Have you witnessed Mm -hmm. that? I'm curious to know your perspective because I know what I've seen.
1: Okay. Um, well, when I was, I was thinking about doing this uh, session with you, I went back and did a little, a little not research, but reminded myself, there's a, um, a study that went on um, in the early mid 1990s um, that was a study of initially about obesity. It was a clinic, uh, a health clinic that was working with obese people. And um, they started asking people like their history like in more than just a uh, medical history, you know, how's your heart? Do you have anybody in your family who has a heart attack? But I asked, start asking questions about abuse and um, neglect in their childhood. And what they found was a connection between the health, long-term health results, depending on how many points you had. And I call this, it's kind of it sounds a little bit cavalier and, and um, about c- talking about these as points, but th- the number of things that happened to you as a child and they found not only an impact on, on your weight, on obesity, um, that your heart condition could be predicted um, and lots of other things that um, heavy drinking, um, the uh, depression, uh, smoking, uh, any kind of addictions, they could actually predict and they started to realize that they really weren't dealing with just obesity in this clinic. They were dealing with a whole bunch. And and for some of the people that they were seeing, they were seeing fairly young. So they could predict that, okay, this is the first thing that's gonna happen perhaps, but it's gonna keep on going. And it makes sense. Trauma, the kind of emotional and psychological and sometimes physical trauma should affect your body. Your body isn't, it's resilient, but, it's not a fortress, you know, and so, and and for a lot of the women that I've met, some of these things are coping mechanisms. You know, uh, alcohol, uh, excessive alcohol is a coping mechanism for what's happened to you or what's happening in, in the relationship that you haven't left yet. Um, smoking, any kind of addictions and, um, and obesity, uh, weight gain has definitely attached not only in a broad sense to trauma history, but particularly to sexual abuse as a child. Um, and I have had a number of women in my group um, who, uh, who are uh, um, overweight and they have they have told me of incest or sexual assault um, as a child. And that they have a thing in their head, uh, and they've struggled with losing weight. But if they if they eat a lot and they gain weight, then they will be less sexually available. I've heard parties,
0: that right. Yes, I and have. And it's a
1: direct connection. I mean, it's it's not even like a whole lot of psychological mumbo-jumbo, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I've also seen women, and this is not in any way backed up by research, but there are connections. If you go through those kinds of traumas, they're very stressful. So there are a lot of, you may know this better than I do, there are a lot of stress-related conditions that we have in our in our body. So, and and there's some cancers actually that are associated with stress. So I have a woman who's been in a long-term, physically abusive, very stressful relationship um, and has had psychological abuse and, and she, that her stress level is so high. I've actually seen a connection and I don't, I can't find this in any kind of literature between breast cancer and domestic violence. Um, huh. and what the way it came to me was that there were several women in my group who've come to my group as domestic violence victims who've have had, have, who are survivors of breast cancer. And they told, they tell me that when they were in a breast cancer survivor group, uh, which they went to get support that many other women talked about being abused. Um, so it, I guess that I'm not going to make it as a clinical diagnosis, but it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, if, if those connections are there because stress, not only stress related conditions, but your immune system goes down. Uh, oh, absolutely. And when your immune system, everything comes in.
0: Absolutely.
1: So I think there are these connections that we have to health kinds of um, results and um, prognosis and diagnosis that we haven't. As a society, really examined. And I think that would uh, begin to give us a better idea of the impact of trauma in our society so that policy making people, when I worked in state government, I was a policy um, uh, maker, um, could say, you know, we're spending a lot of money on these people who are coming out of these situations rather than going back and try to prevent some of those because many women that I work with who have been devastated financially by, um, particularly in domestic violence situations are usually on some kind of disability. So they're already in the system and, and those disabilities um, are, are long-term and chronic. So they're not gonna just you know, get better tomorrow and then they'll be able to go back to work and, and have health insurance to their employer. So those kinds of, and I think there are people who have documented this in dollars and cents that have um, really been the focus of, and I still think that until we see domestic violence, sexual assault, child sexual assault, child abuse as a public health problem, we're never gonna solve this problem. Right now it's kind of stuck in the criminal justice setting, Mm -hmm. rightly so, because these are criminal acts in many cases, but it's a public health issue. And if we've learned anything in COVID about we learned about public health, you know, what can we do up front to begin to see, you know, what can we do that begins to identify some of the risk factors that would allow people not to be over here and have these conditions, but to stop them here. And it's not only in educating people about it, but also educating the system and putting the money there, putting the resources there to do that. And I think that's where perhaps out of all this, our society, and maybe with COVID, we're we're a little bit more um, able to be conversant about that as a solution. Um, And there are, there have been people who, for a number of years, particularly in the public health areas in this country and around the world, who've been saying these are public health issues, Um, If we don't solve them, we will have a continuation of these problems for these individuals and many more throughout their lifetime. It's a lifespan kind of thing. Um, But the victories that they can have, you know, losing weight, um, getting a better job, uh, getting back into the workforce, going back to school, those are all things that can keep them moving, but at any time they can also get set back. And that's the hard thing that you and I see is when the setbacks come. Because you think, yeah. oh, you know, let's go back over it. Okay. Is the negative voice in your head too loud? Is the positive voice not loud enough? Do you have your goal set realistically? You know, kind of like parse it out a little bit, but that you know, underneath it is just their spirit sometimes is just really struggling with it. Yeah,
0: for sure. Okay. You brought up the pandemic. Let's Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about how this situation that we're in has affected those who have had trauma in their past. How has this made things difficult?
1: Well, I think practically for a lot of people, and this has been, this has been in the, um, in the news a lot is how, in particularly in domestic violence and also in sexual assault cases, that it is isolated women and in some cases that they haven't gotten out of a domestic violence and they were basically sheltering in place with their abuser. And that was, and the capacity of the domestic violence shelters to house these women. And I, I have been in shelters. They're not easy places to live. Um, it's a, it's difficult. Everybody is in a. Um, uh, um, traumatic, have had, has had traumatic experiences, they're working through stuff. A lot of times children are housed with the moms, they have to um, you know, move in and out of the shelters, get the kids to school, try to get a new place, a lot of stuff going on. So that's one thing I think we've learned with COVID is that there were people that we couldn't protect in this in in COVID, it wasn't just we're all just going to go home and shelter for a while and see if we're okay. And then I think that COVID has impacted the health system so that women I know who would have um, and I I really emphasize with the women I work with, please, you know, they have this idea that they can't they can't ask for help. That's like a weakness thing. Yep. So ask for help, but it's hard to go ask for help when the system is over is overcome. And a lot of them ha- have ongoing therapy classes. There's been an, a movement to telehealth, which is great. I think that's, that's also a really good thing because for lots of women to get places is hard. I know I, I, use, I have done my workshops and I do a monthly follow-up with the women who come through my workshops. Those were all in person. And so I had women who had trouble getting transportation, and they had trouble, you know, childcare, and sometimes they couldn't show up. They didn't know where they were going. Um, We're on Zoom now, and I've seen people I haven't seen in a long time. So there's parts of it that have, you know, made it easier, and parts that have made it harder. I think the hardest thing for the women that I've worked with, who because I've been able to build a community of thrivers, which is what I call them, is just not being together. you know, in person, Um, you know, not, not getting hugged, not feeling the the strength of the community. We've been able to do some of it on Zoom, um, but a lot of the women don't have the technology to do Zoom really well. Um, Their cell phones are, you know, not, they're not up to date. So Zoom only takes a certain level of of a, particularly an iPhone. Um, uh, Cell phones aren't the best way to do this. A laptop is, kind of a luxury for some of them. Or if they have a laptop, they've gotten it through the school because their kids need it to do at-home uh, schooling um, during the during the COVID. So th- their ability to manage the system and for many of them, particularly those who have suffered depression in all of this and feelings of worthlessness, being by themselves is not a great thing. Um, and so that isolation just isolates, isolates. So that's why I've actually I've actually picked up the number of times that I've done and uh, made connections with them. And I have a Facebook page, a, a secret group. And so sometimes we we'll just get on the Facebook page and just chat a little bit. Um, so the idea that that community has been, and then there's just the fear of what could happen next. So what if I have all this going on and then I get COVID on top of that? Or my, my job is gone away and I don't have the ability to, the technology to keep in touch so I don't have a job anymore. Or my unemployment got screwed up even before COVID and now I can't get unemployment. Or it's really scary to go to this job interview because they want me to go. It's going to, a woman, it was in the parking lot and she'd never had a job interview in the parking lot before and she was a little scared by that. And a man was going to interview her. And, and, and I said, well, I think that's social distancing. <laughs> and she got the job, but you know, just kind wow. of like, how is this going to work? And how does it trigger some other things in my life that I had learned how to cope around them. And now it's all being thrown up in the air. What I have told the women in my group, the same as I've told myself is that there's also great opportunity here. So um You know, you've learned more about Zoom. You've learned how to do virtual stuff. This is something that you can put on your resume. (laughs) You know, it's something that that will allow you to do things that you may have been afraid to do on the computer before. Um, But I don't know that people are seeing those as trade-offs yet (laughs) because we still don't know how this, I wouldn't say how it's gonna end, but what's the next piece of this? And and will it keep so much? Will it keep keep compromising our life, or will we Mm -hmm. find some place where it begins to open up our life a little bit, um, and and define normal, and um, and then all the other things that are in their lives? Can they push push all that trauma um, response into this world that is going to be created, and what would it look like, and? And because they've had so much other stuff going on, it's like, we can't really do one more thing here. <laughs> could we <laughs> Could we like keep it? Yeah, there is no um, there's no options.
0: Yeah, I've seen some heartbreaking things, I will say uh, that some exactly what you described these people who ended up being very isolated and they were already dealing with this other stuff. And then here they are disconnected from the help that they really needed and they're alone and the thoughts fester and things happen and the stress and the, you know, constant bombardment of negative, you know, news and et cetera, fear and, you know, so much that it's really wreaked a lot of havoc on a lot of people emotionally, mentally, physically.
1: Right. So what I have found the most successful, not only for myself, but in the work I do, is I just give them some real simple steps and um, suggest that they come back to those steps if when they're, I wouldn't say in trouble, but when they sort of begin to feel like they're slipping from the ability to keep coping. And I have laid them out very simply. I call them the seven steps to thriving. And the first one is see, you see a journey, you, you're on a journey. And for some women they're surprised when i tell them that we do a little exercise in the workshop they're like oh my god no one ever told me i was on a journey (laughs) i thought i was gonna i have been a victim all my life and they tell me you know i'm a really good survivor i can survive anything i thought that's really great but boy that's a lot of energy on this side of the, the thing let's get it let's get the energy over into surviving and thriving they're like oh okay cool and then the second step is to sort of quiet that inner critic, that negative voice in your head. Sometimes it's been fed by abusive people in your life. Um, I don't know how they know this, but, you know, you're fat and stupid and no one ever love you. So you have to stay with me and that voice. And sometimes it's from your childhood, from an abusive parent. And to recognize that, that voice is not the only voice that you could have in your head and to, Recognize it's the negative voice, find the positive and see if you can move through it. And then bringing up what I call the happy person inside, the part of you that's been untouched by all that's ever happened to you. And they're kind of fascinated by that. I mean, untouched by everything that's ever happened to me because they think that all that's happened to them is just consumed every thought, every part of their body. And so we bring that part up. And then um, that part, um, happy person inside, we begin to vision. Okay, so what's some of the things you'd love to do? And it could be as simple as go back to school, or I always wanted to uh, open up a um, shelter for kids. You know, it could be a big goal, but it so to begin to start moving. And then, what's the fear that holds you back? And sometimes that inner critic feeds that fear. Um, you know, uh, fear of rejection, fear of failure. I think women have a fear of success. What if we actually get our act together? I, mean, I think you're right. What are we going to do now? It's always mm-hmm. been struggle, struggle, struggle. And then finally, the idea that you can, there's a reward in all this, that if you, if you begin to take those steps and get your goals, even if they're little goals that start to build you up, um, there's a reward in there. That's the real you. It feels good. Um, I have always, it took me a while to figure this out, but through my own exercise, I figured out that the thing, you asked me in the beginning why I do this. Um, I have always, since I was a little girl, wanted to do something good. And for me, my reward in what I do is meaningful work, helping and healing others. And if I can do that, I will do anything, (laughs) you know, and there are things that like when I went to law school, I knew I wasn't going to be a tax lawyer. That just didn't feel to me. I know that some people find that to be meaningful. It is not (laughs) to me. Uh, So I knew I was not I didn't know why, but I knew I wasn't going to be a tax lawyer. I knew that I was going to do something that was meaningful, helping and healing others and accomplishing something. And so if I know that's my reward, then I can push down that fear wall you know i don't really want to and i realized this when i was going to court years ago and i didn't have much experience going to court with these women who needed a restraining order and and i had to go into court and convince the judge to give it to them and my fear was like oh he's going to think i'm stupid or my inner critic was going and you know i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to fail um and i if i if you push through that and then that reward of the woman walking out with her restraining order saying thank you thank you thank you thank you so I think if we can get all of that to work, then you can find something meaningful in your life and, and start to build and build and build. And I've had women in my group for 10, 15 years and I have seen them do amazing things. Things that I, I didn't even envision when they walked in the door because I didn't know them well enough but, or what their desires were. Uh, or I can sometimes see the women actually transform their faces get all different even in the course of a two day workshop cuz suddenly they get that energy that spirit to come to come back up you probably see that when they start to lose some weight and they can feel
0: well getting healthier just yes. that they feel like they they have some control right. like they're on the right path that like they actually can do something that's right. not going to fail
1: but yeah, the that, fear of that, failure that, that I call yeah. it the wall that like this, this really great intention comes along and going well, and it's like, boom. Yep. And, I, and <laughs> with a with a wall, you either go over it under or through it. And if you can get through it, on the other side is that reward, oh, I did something really good. And then they can come back around, take that energy and start the next thing. Okay, so now that I lost some weight, what else could I do? <laughs> you know, and that's a positive pattern. And, and we all do it. It's not like, you know, it's, a human, it's a human experience, You know, um, positive energy, focused desire, push through your fears and get the reward. So it's just the question that I ask the women in, that come into my workshop, where are you stuck? Do you, do you not have enough positive energy? Um, do you not have a focused desire? Maybe it's, a, you know, I want a better life. That's a great desire, but let's get it down to a job or go back to school or something. And then what's your fear? And I, I teach that most of our fears are thoughts, not things. So the fear of rejection is because we've been rejected in the past and now it's a thought and suddenly we put this thought on this thing that we may not be rejected for. We haven't tried yet, um, but that thought can stop us. And then, and then maybe you haven't got your, um, your reward clear enough in your head. Uh, and once you do that, yeah, I want that. I want that reward. I, all I got to do is push through that wall and I can get it. So it's a very human process. We just get, and, and particularly people who've gone through trauma, um, either they can't get out of the bed in the morning with positive energy or they don't have a focused desire because they're just so depressed or their fear is just so big um, that they failed and they failed and they failed. Even though those failures have tended to be either not their fault or they have been so piled up that it's hard to distinguish that it was something that they did versus the wave was just, they talk about the tsunami of their life. You know, it just feels like it's just building and building and building. Um, and that seems to break open for a lot of the women, the idea that, yeah, I can do this. Um, and, and that, uh, whether the desire is strong enough or the um, the positive energy is strong enough or the, or the fear of the fear is beginning to dissipate somehow they start crashing through and once they do that it's almost like I can't stop them and then they I love they, that. That 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 relief,
0: that that spark you see, right. that they they finally see there might be some hope
1: there. Right. Hey. And then they come back and tell me, and then I'm going to go do this, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, I'm going to open up a retreat center. I mean, you know, I, I it's just I, I find it so remarkable because I wish I could like um, film them on the day that I meet them, um, and and literally compare it. So, and literally compare it because it's so clear that there's a transformation there. And sometimes it's literally physical, but just the way they uh, present themselves and they start talking in a whole. Um, and we we kid about this because when we're together, we talk differently with each other because we know because we know that it has a it has a um, ability to to really. Um, feed each other you know, and feed each other. And one of the things I found in my group that's been helpful is that I have women who've been with me longer term. So the new women coming in, they have like a role model. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, that's what it looks like a couple of years out. Oh, that's what it looks like when you, so it gives you an idea that first of all, you're not alone. And secondly, that if you get on this path, you you might be able to do, cause they look like ordinary people. They're not anything special but they're talking in a different way and they're describing things in their life and their, and their energy is different. Um, And that's what they want. They like, I want that. Can you tell me how to get that? Um, And if I can give that, that's like the best thing I can, you know, there's no other great greater gift than then get somebody moving in a part of their life that they thought.
0: Yes. um, makes dead. it all worth and, and everything that you had to go through to get where you're at to where you can help people worth it
1: right, right. okay
0: you started talking about the the seven <clears throat> steps that that you go through mm-hmm. can you just kind of go through all that and and give all the steps i think it's very yeah. interesting
1: yeah so they're they're actually up on my website which is thriver zone because that's what I do the um thriver zone so um The seven steps are designed so that you can start from one place and move through them. I've also asked the women which steps they come back to the most, because I don't think it's a one-time thing. So um, the the first step is see your journey, what we were talking about, victim to survivor to thriver. And usually I use a story because stories have a beginning, middle and end. And usually most stories are about something bad happens to somebody or some kind of struggle and then how they overcome it and then the happy ending. Um, struggle to transformation to happy ending. The second one is quieting the inner critic, understanding, and I have an exercise for that, understanding there's a negative voice in your head, been fed by a lot of things in your life, and how do you talk to it and talk it down? And how do you know when it shows up? Um, because it'll show up in some odd places. Um, connecting with a happy person inside, uh, bringing up that part of you that has been untouched, And I use an exercise where you write a letter to uh, the happy person inside, write the letter to you. She's like your inner cheerleader. Yes, you can. Amber, you can do it. You can do it. Boy, you're so smart. Um, And just, keeping that connection and then um, using other things. The step four is getting positive energy. What are some things you can do on a consistent basis in your life to get positive? And it could be simple things. Like I love to bake cookies. So go bake cookies. I love to take a walk every day. That gives you positive energy clears your head and then start to vision a new place in your life? Where do you want to be in a certain period of time? And it may not even be a thing that you do, but it may be a state of mind. You know, I'm sitting on the deck of my beautiful home. I feel really good about myself. My kids are doing well. Um, I'm taking a breath. This is great. So that that vision. And then overcoming fear. How do you identify some of the fears? Fear, once again, thoughts, not things. Fear of rejection, uh, fear of abandonment, fear of betrayal, uh, fear of success, uh, fear of uh, aging. You know, I'm too old to start over again. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then finally, I have a goal setting process. So let's, let's set a goal. It might be a simple goal. You know, when I go back to school, I want to uh, get my resume together and then taking it step by step and, and identifying in each step where the fear might be. What is that thought? You know okay I want to go back to school but I'm a fear that I have a fear that I can't get the financing okay so how do I go and get financing and solve that problem and then keep on going so really trying to say that this is the the, the seven steps they're they're not I mean I'm not smart enough to have made these up myself it's pretty much the way people function in our society um, and very successful people, I think, are not smarter than us. They're just more highly motivated. They don't get stuck somewhere. And um, the women tell me the, the steps they come back to is the inner critic, inner critic step. They'll suddenly realize that, oh, that's the inner critic that's gabbering at me about why I can't get that job and where I'm going to screw up the, inter- the, the job interview. And the second one is they don't stay connected enough to the happy person inside. Mm-hmm. They lose track of her. She loses tracks of them. Um, and they sort of go deeper into that bad things always happen to me. I, I call those um, limiting beliefs about yourself bad things always happen to me, I'll never get my life together. Um, e- even though you may feel that at some point in your life, it doesn't have to be the mantra of your life. It doesn't have to be something that stays with you forever. Um, the same way that you do with women who've, uh, who are overweight, You know, I'm always gonna be a fat person, that, that's not true. Uh, technically, humanly, it's not true, but it's It's a mantra that goes in your head. Or I know women who were told as children they were fat and that stuck with them the whole life. Yeah. And and the inner critic takes on that little voice. And so they get that, you're fat and stupid and no one's ever going to love you. And they're wondering, well, where did that come from? Well, it's the combination of voices that have been brought to you. So in, in that process of bringing yourself forward, Um, And starting to live a different way. Um, And seeing where the pauses are for you, seeing where you're stuck, and then finding support around that I think is really the process. That is really what I've been doing since Maggie's death. And I realized that even before Maggie's death, I was using some of these techniques, but I didn't have names for them. I didn't have a full process and i can look back and see things that if i would have had a full process maybe i could have done something even more cool but but you know it's sort of like and i i attribute that somewhat to my youth but but the idea that we don't always get this all together and and that's why with my seven steps i actually have been working with men who are interested in this because um i've been working in a men's prison actually where a number of the men um have, have been perpetrators of abuse and violence in their lives. And, and they have been arrested and they're probably going to be there the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they want to be thrivers. They want to not live in their past and they want to reconcile to where um, they want to be um, full people again. Uh, And some of them have never been full people, I guess, or never found the fullness of their life because they've been stuck in patterns that were dictated as children or from outside forces. So I think that yearning uh, to be a thriver, to um, make our lives make sense, to live the fullness of our life uh, isn't in all of us, but some of us have things that block it, or in some cases, um, from a very young age, it's never even been a possibility. So for some of the women in my group, they're actually learning at a much later stage in their life, the things that children should, if not learn experience, you know, having that big dream um, and having parents and family support that big dream and show them the positive way to get there and to feel good about themselves, Um, not, Many of us have that total experience. Some of us have part of that experience Mm -hmm. and we have some resiliency to find our own way through it, but not everybody has that. That's very true. So we have to teach it sometimes or we have to um, find role models to model it, which is why I think we're so fascinated in our society about people who face struggle. We want to know. So, how did they do that? Um, the most recent cohort has been people who have lost loved ones through COVID. You know that um, process of grieving that, particularly when there's no funerals, you can't have a yeah. public funeral. But the idea that you've been you struggled through it. The other cohort that's coming out of COVID is people who um, had had COVID and have. Um, somehow recovered, but they still have long-term effects. They, I think they're calling long-termers, long haulers, long haulers. Those people were looking to, to say, so how did you get through that? Many people who come through our society around um, well, gun violence, for example, um, my niece was murdered um, the fall after Col- Columbine, so that was kind of the beginning of school of school-based violence. But today there is cases of, particularly the uh, Parkland um, high school students who just came through that experience and like, okay, we're out there, you know, we're going to make something good out of this. Mm-hmm. That real resiliency. Um, I mean, they, 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 they have their own personal bouncing back and forward, trying to deal with their own personal trauma, but they found a real clear path. The same thing I live in Connecticut, the same thing with the, the Newtown parents here in Connecticut. Um, they're still fighting um, for things to get better. So I think we as um, humans really appreciate and admire that kind of stick to it in us and let's go do something positive. At the same time, you see the crushing below of that on people's lives.
0: Oh, sure. Absolutely. Okay. I have a question for you, or or actually, can you give some advice? Because we touched on this a little bit earlier about how sometimes when you have bad things happen to you and you, you you want to get help, but you're scared to get ask for help because that shows you're weak or, you know, people look at you and oh, this really infuriates me. Just get over it. Just get over it. Yeah. Cause that works so well. Okay. I'm done. I'm over it now. Thank you. Great advice. What advice would you give somebody
1: that has those feelings, but they desperately need help? Well, I think it's, um, it's difficult. I agree there are people like that out there. I know after my niece's murder there were some people who thought, well, you should just like and and you know, every member of my family and everybody who knew Maggie should be on the same timeline to get over it. You know, if if you know if you were if you knew Maggie better or you were in, you know, at school with her, that should shouldn't take you that long, you know, and there's no differentiation. And I think the other thing that we perceive in our society is about weakness. Um, I don't know, uh, my best advice is to not let yourself do that. (laughs) Um, And I think it sounds really simple, but I think it's really recognizing that you're doing that, that asking for help is not a weakness. And I think that's the inner critic that's in your head telling you that. So it's recognizing that the inner critic is talking to you now. It's not a real voice, it's just one voice. When I was a little kid, there was a cartoon that um, was on TV and it had, the devil was on one shoulder and the angel was on the other shoulder and it was talking back and forth. That's what I try to think about my inner critic. Here's the inner critic over here and there's my happy person. Now, which one do I wanna listen to today? Um, and, And for a long time, I didn't realize that was the inner critic voice. So I have to tell myself that and I have to remember I have a positive voice. Um, and that positive voice is telling me that it's not weakness, that you can ask for help. And in fact, that's been a mantra of mine lately with the women in my group, particularly through COVID. We ask for help. And if it if it's not, if it's not within our group asking for help, asking me or someone in the group, um, it's asking out there. And if you don't know how to ask, then come to the group and we'll help, we'll write a little script for you. You know, to, to do that. But asking for help is not something um because you know when people come to you asking for your help, you're more than willing to give that help. And very rarely do you say, Well, you know, I wish she wouldn't have come, you know, because boy, it's really a bad day and I have to Just wash my lose hair. weight, yeah. just get healthy, right. just, oh, yeah. just make up your mind to just do that. Yeah, just pe- that easy. yeah, people think that that's um that in that there's willpower involved in it, I guess, is the way to yeah. describe it, and that you don't have the willpower. I think <laughs> we're getting, yeah. and I'm not saying that there isn't a part of it that you got to get yourself determined and focused and whatever, but it's not like some people have it and some people don't, or you can conjure it up somewhere out of you know thin air or read a book about it. Um, I think it's more about, when you think about how children, little kids learn it's always it's also role modeling. It's always role modeling. What mommy does, what daddy does, what big sister does. So I think that's why the community that I've built and we all build around us, um, the same way you built with your build with your clients, is so important because there are people who will understand it, which is why I don't have the women tell their stories to each other, mm-hmm. because then we start comparing are we starting getting upset and we think that oh god that's so terrible you know what happened to me wasn't so terrible um and and yeah there are some things that are worse than what happened to you but that doesn't help you do anything Mm-mm. except to get either more depressed or to go into a state of catatonic i can't do anything about it so um i think that it's a mind game i guess is the way to describe it and i always say You know, anybody can give me their advice, but I don't have to listen to it. And in that process, I take control of what comes. It's sort of like, I guess what you talk about in weight control, what comes into your body is going to is is a is a major factor. But it's also your mind and how you perceive it. You know, huge, some, huge some people binge because not because they're hungry, because it's just the way their mind is is working, mm-hmm. as you can tell, I've been on many diets <laughs> uh, so and none of which have ever really worked for me in one piece. I've, I sort of pieced it together and figured out how I can keep myself where I want to be. I think it's a lot about the messages that women get. I think women in particular, although men don't ask for directions, that's true, but, <laughs> but women in particular are taught to take our value from the outside. Um, and that's how we're socialized. So if you're asking questions or asking for help, then the people, those people on the outside are devaluing you because God, she has to ask for help. You know, that's not good. She's not, she's not a really good person. Um, and so we have to take our value from within and I need help. Um, I also think that when you do it a couple of times and you ask for help and you realize that you get your, your problem solved, it's like, Oh, that's really cool. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna try that. I'm gonna try that again because you know what? I could have spent five days on this thing and I just called my friend and she knew the answer. So what was the big deal? You know, it's like, am I stupid or what? Um, I think it's a lot, a lot of just mind control and um and feeling good about yourself feeling okay about yourself.
0: And that is a process. That is a process.
1: <laughs> right, right. And, and I think that's one of the things that some people think is that either you have it or you don't have it. But I don't think that's, that's true. I, I don't think that, although there are ways that your brain can get scrambled up a bit, um, I think that we all as human beings want to be okay and do okay and have a happy life. And we do also want to help each other. I think that's why we're here. So that's the other thing I think about when I don't ask for help or I hesitate to. It's like, but that person is going to want to help me, <laughs> and and they're going to say to me, "Oh, you should have asked sooner. You know, I could have done that with you. Don't don't worry about that."
0: I agree with you a hundred percent because I know I am more than happy if I can even make a difference for one person that makes everything I do worth it. And so, and there are lots of people out there who genuinely want to help and they have the knowledge and the experience to help. Right. Maybe you haven't had the same experience or the same knowledge. Maybe you just need a little bit of help. It's, it's nothing wrong with asking for help. And, Oh, that, that, is, that is such a huge issue these right. days. Well, I think it's always been an issue, but I, I, I really noticed that like a lot lately and I don't know if it's just because my eyes are open or what
1: but I'm just like (laughs) well you also probably see that see the pattern a bit that you can you can you sort of know what's going to happen next year when you said something like well why didn't you ask for help or or you came to me for help so why can't you go over there well I don't know I feel really stupid or what if they think I'm stupid or maybe they don't have the answer well then you ask somebody else Um, exactly. (laughs) And then of course you
0: always have the ones who keep going to different people till they get the answer they want. That makes me giggle. That, that is so funny to me, but you have those two, but that's generally not what what happens, but okay. So let's get into a little bit about your books and your program. Like Mm -hmm. if somebody wanted to come to you, that they're resonating with what you're saying, they want to come to you. What, how can they do that? and And talk a little bit about your books. Uh, I'm interested in. that.
1: So um, because I'm a writer, I decided it, when I had been doing the workshops for a period of time that I wanted to put the material that I had into books, and particularly for books that would resonate with survivors themselves, not sort of academic, but to really um, they're kind of workbooks, although there's they're not um, there's no lines you can you can write in. But there are writing prompts that you can have a notebook and and do. So I really try to design them, and I designed them in three parts. Uh, One is called the first one's called entering the thriver zone um, because that's what that's the way I teach it. We're going to enter this place that may seem strange and bizarre to us, and but very exciting, um, and and walk through those seven steps. The second book is called "Staying in the Thrive Zone" because I thought, well, it's not just entering; you got to stay there for a while and really begin to develop those goals. So I really focused on that, um, you know, the, the motivational uh, path that I described before: uh, positive energy, focused desire, uh, wear your fears, and remember your um, your happy ending, the real you. Um, and I have, uh, in all my books, I have samples from the women; they've uh, given me permission with their first names only to publish their own writing. So you can sort of see how that works. And I have some worksheets and um, things that you can play with a little bit. And all of them have what I call thriver success stories, women who have given me some, some piece of their story, uh, if, if not the longer piece, but the shorter piece. Um, and particularly talk, the second book I have, women who did the writing prompt was um, uh, once upon a time, um, there was a girl who thought she couldn't but she did. And then they sort of go through the steps and I, you know, she thought she couldn't go back to school. She thought she couldn't have an organic farm. And these are all women that actually were in my group and did these amazing things. And the third book is called living in the thriver zone. Cause I think that's what we want to do. Not just kind of like spend a little a few minutes over here and a few minutes over there, but really begin to live in that thriver zone as much as you can. Um, and, and in that book, I interviewed seven women who've been in my group for a period of time, some who were in my very first workshop and asked them, you know, which exercise helped them the most. How did you feel when you first got here? How do you feel now? And what were some of the things you've been able to accomplish? And that was really exciting because they were very articulate I'm like, oh, this is really cool. Um, I really have been doing good things. (laughs) Um, and so I put them together in this package now, I, I sell them as, a, as a, a trilogy that I think can really help women move through them. And they're all exercises. You can the very simple writing prompts and, and whatever else um, that might just begin to spark you into um, any one of them to do that. I, I still do workshops. I, um, one of the things that I have done from the very beginning is I have done the workshops for free I've, I always felt that these are not luxury items. Uh, many of the women, uh, initially I was doing them in person in Connecticut. One of the things that happened in COVID is I started doing them virtually, which has been kind of interesting. A, a little bit of adaptation. Um, I mostly send out materials rather than um, things that I hand, would hand out in a in-person workshop. But I've been able to attract women from other parts of the country and other parts other countries actually. And also I've there's women who had who were in my group in Connecticut. They moved away for a variety of reasons and now they're living in Chicago and California. And I got to see them again. So that was pretty fun. Um, and what I want to do now is I regularly work with people who come to um, some of my trainings that I do in, in various places. I'm doing a conference next week. Uh, I'm going to be doing a training that sort of goes through it. People who work with survivors who are looking for this Mm -hmm. kind of material. I don't think that we have in the women's movement, uh, particularly around domestic violence and sexual assault, we haven't given the women, the survivors, access to all three steps. Mm -hmm. The victim stage, which helps them get safe and stable. The survivor stage that helps them realize that they've gotten through it. And now this survivor place, that's what I call it, uh, to reconnect. And so I've started doing some train the trainers. I'm working on getting the materials licensed so that it can, they can be done in nonprofit programs and really begin to see how to build it, um, particularly from the way I've presented it and how it might be presented in other kinds of settings. And I've had interest, like I said, from, um, from male prisons. I've done some work in a female prison which is an interesting place because a number of women who have been uh, imprisoned in our society are there, um, I wouldn't say because of their abuse, but their abuse led them to do certain things or they got arrested in some jurisdictions. Um, If there's a police officer is sent to a abusive situation, they'll arrest both people. And so the victim as well as the perpetrator gets arrested. Um, So there's a lot of interest in this idea that uh, as we said in the very beginning that people are facing trauma and what are some materials that can begin to move it through. My program is not clinical, uh, although I sh- uh, there's a couple of things that I have I use that have some clinical um, background to them or um, pieces of it that are, are parallel to some, some clinical practices. But um, it's something that I think it's more like Women relating to each other in a very um, simple and normal.